it would be hard to come up with a much better illustration for what we are representing with Beyond These Walls than Curtis's story that you just heard. This is exactly what we are dreaming of in this initiative, that our people will be empowered and encouraged to reach out beyond our walls with the life-giving, life-changing news of Jesus Christ. And so I say thank you to Curtis for being willing to courageously share that story. It's a wonderful story. I cannot tell you how excited I have been for this weekend to arrive. Uh, In some ways, it's uh, something that I've been dreaming of for years and years and years. I have been signing hundreds of thank you notes this last week, and, uh, and I'm anxious for, to share the, the total with you later on in the message. But, um, of course, when you are processing hundreds of documents, sometimes you make a, a few mistakes. Uh, for instance, I wonder how many of you noticed the tiny little typo in the first paragraph of the thank you letter that I sent out to those of you who made a pledge. Um, You might see it in the second line there. Uh, The sentence was supposed to begin with the words, if you, and unfortunately we left out the I. Let's take a little closer look at you. Now, I'm no fundraising expert. But I'll bet that when you're crafting a letter of thank you to your donors, it doesn't, uh, you, you don't include that phrase. You know, for, as your senior pastor, from the bottom of my heart, F. <laughs> that was a fun surprise that I came into for my staff that day. From the bottom of my heart, though, I want to thank you for the uh, enthusiastic response that you have shown to this initiative. And I want us to recognize this is really an epic moment in the life of our congregation. I don't want us to just blaze through this weekend and not pause to savor something that has been coming for a long time. We're, we're putting a bow on something that began nearly 30 years ago when we built our gymnasium. Because there was no place in the community for kids to play. We said, we're going to build our gym first. When we built that gym, we started ourselves on a trajectory that would build and build and build again. And and certainly we built to meet our needs, but more than that, we from the beginning built to meet the needs of our community. That was our trajectory. And we did this by faith, and we did so at some risk. We took on a mortgage that at the high point amounted to $9 million. That is a real mortgage. And these walls have served us and they have served our community for 30 years. But for those of us who were there from the beginning, and I wonder if I could pause just a moment to ask, if you were here that when we built that gymnasium, could you slip your hand up so the rest of us can say thank you to our pioneers? For those of us who were here 30 years ago, we were straining for a glimpse of a moment in the distant future, a glimpse when we would pay that last mortgage payment, a a, a glimpse of a, a moment when we would tear up that mortgage and we would free up those resources and free up this church to serve this community as we never had before. And today we're going to find out how much closer we're going to get to that moment. So like I say, this is an epic moment for us. But we have said this all along. This is not just a fundraising initiative. This is a disciple-making 
initiative. Our journey through the Gospel of Matthew has shown us touchstones where Jesus, moments where Jesus took these green recruits and through the experiences that they shared began to transform them into the kind of disciples that would make history. And you'll recall if you've been here these weeks, some of those touchstone moments, the call of the disciple. Everyone has to have their own individual call. They are conspicuous. We're to be light and salt in the world, right? They're courageous. They've got to be willing to step out of that boat once in a while. They have, they have to be disciples that are ready to confront the gates of hell, which will not prevail against us. And as Pastor Megan so capably taught us last week, they also have to, have to obey the great commandment to love God and to love their neighbor in all that they do. Today, our, our final touchstone is compassion. Would you say it, please? Here's the context for our story in Matthew chapter 25. This is the last week of Jesus' life before he's going to be crucified. He's in Jerusalem. Every day he's in the temple messing things up. He is, he is letting the religious leaders have it. And then at the end of the day, they retire back to their favorite place to hang out, which was the Mount of Olives. So Jesus takes the disciples up to the Mount of Olives, and this is the last segment of teaching before the plot to destroy him unfolds. So this is the last teaching segment. And the disciples say, Jesus, would you teach us about the end times? You keep talking about this. Would you please tell us more about the end times? And so Jesus gives several parables that talk about the end times, and then he ends with this epic, sweeping picture of how things are going to come to conclusion in the final judgment. And I'd like, to, um, I'd like to share that with you this morning, Matthew chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And before him will be gathered all the nations... And he will separate the people one from another as a, sheep, as a shepherd separates his sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous shall answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and give you food or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Then the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For when I was hungry, you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, 
and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him, saying, Lord, when did you see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these shall go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. This is a hard word, Lord, and we pray that we would receive it by the power of your Spirit, that it would move us, change us to be those that you will call your sheep, your blessed, that we, every one of us, might be among those who enter into the kingdom that you have prepared for us from the foundation of the world. For we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. This is a powerful text. Do you see what I mean? It's an epic text. There are parables that precede this. This is not a parable. And except for the metaphor of the sheep and the goats, from there on, he's talking about things that will really, really happen. It is a sweeping, awesome, intimidating, uh, exhilarating passage of Scripture. One of the things that it teaches us is to understand what the words son of man mean. It was Jesus' favorite expression for himself. He called himself the Son of Man more than any other thing that he called himself. And, uh, and when you hear that phrase, you might say that seems like such a modest, uh, such an unremarkable title for Jesus, Son of Man. But when we come to this text, we discover really what the Son of Man is all about. In fact, Jesus aligns the Son of Man with another word that he uses twice in this text to describe himself. Did you hear the word? King. King. Twice we hear the word king. And now we begin to see clearly what Palm Sunday was only hinting at, that Jesus Christ is in fact the king over all nations, over all the earth. Notice also in this account all of the references to deity. The king will come in his glory. He will sit on his glorious throne. He will be surrounded by all of the angels. Glory in the Bible belongs only to God. The throne of judgment belongs only to God. And the angels answer only to God. And so we learn that Jesus, the Son of Man, is also God and King and judge over all humanity. You will never read a loftier description of Jesus Christ than you find right here. Before King Jesus are gathered all of the nations of the world. And notice it's not just the Christian nations. It's not just the Jewish nation. It is all nations, every tongue, every tribe, every religion, all, every religion, all are gathered before him. And all of the angels of heaven are gathered around him looking on. Can you imagine the sight that it is? It is an epic sight of billions and billions and billions of people gathered before, seated before the glorious throne of Christ with the angels looking on. And then we read of this great separating. One by one, we are told, one by one, he separates all of the people, some to his right and some to his left. And he announces that those who are going to the right will inherit a a kingdom that has been prepared from them, from, from the foundation of the world. And then to the left, he tells those that they are going to inherit a place of judgment that is prepared for the devil and his angels. See what I mean about the epic, sweeping nature of this story? 
And here's what I find very interesting and, and in some ways disturbing about this teaching. This separating, this judgment that takes place is based not upon what they believe, but upon what they have done. And frankly, this idea can be disturbing to us evangelicals. It seems in the story that we are being admitted into heaven on the basis of how compassionate we are. If we have fed the hungry and watered the thirsty and uh, welcomed the stranger and clothed the naked and visited the sick and the imprisoned, if we have done these good things, then we will be admitted into heaven. And if we have not done those good things, well, it's not good where we're going. And we evangelicals find ourselves protesting, wait a second, this is works righteousness. This is like earning our salvation. What about grace? Aren't we saved only by God's grace through faith, not by good works? If we were to hear this teaching from anyone else, we might say that is nothing more than liberal, socialist claptrap. It is do-goodism masquerading as religion. This emphasis on social justice seems to be a a better fit for a, a mainline liberal denomination, like the one we left. We evangelicals preach that salvation comes only through the grace of God by faith in Jesus Christ. We will make it into heaven not because of our good works that we do for others, but because of the good work that Jesus Christ has done for us. His saving work, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and all this social justice stuff seems like a cheap substitute for the real salvation that comes only through Jesus Christ, doesn't it? This teaching on good works as our ticket into heaven just doesn't seem to square with what we've always been taught. It it seems fishy. It doesn't seem to honor the centrality of Jesus Christ. There's only one problem about that. It is Jesus who's doing the teaching. It is Jesus who's doing the teaching. It is Jesus who says that our eternal destination will be determined by how we care for the pitiful and the poor and the broken people in the world. So what do we do with this conundrum? First of all, this. We set it in context. This is one of Jesus' teachings in Matthew. There are many other teachings in Matthew. Many teachings in which Jesus makes it very clear that salvation is dependent upon him. That he is the Savior who has come to take away our sins and fit us for heaven. It is Jesus who taught this about salvation in Matthew 11. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. It is Jesus who taught that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many in Matthew 20. And then this we will read later in Matthew 26 at the Last Supper. This is my blood, he says, the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. From the opening magnificent verses of the Beatitude to the closing verses of the Great Commission, Jesus makes it clear that he alone is the source of our salvation. That only those who have been called by God's grace and washed clean by the blood of Christ will enter the kingdom of heaven. So then what do we do with this teaching of Jesus that seems to make acts of compassion the key that opens heaven's doors? How do we reconcile grace and works? One way that we might do it is this. We view this teaching as a mirror and not a menu. It is a mirror and not a menu. 
If we view acts of compassion like these that Jesus has enumerated as a means for cooking up our salvation, then we're in trouble. If we imagine that by doing enough good things we earn God's favor and score a seat on the heaven train, then we have missed the rest of Matthew's gospel. As a matter of fact, Jesus reserved the harshest things he had to say for the hyper, flamboyantly religious people. Early on in Matthew, we read about the way he excoriated the guy who's standing out on the street corner praying so that he'll be noticed by everyone. Remember that? And then he also excoriates the guy who has the great big wad of cash that he throws very dramatically into the offering plate so that everyone will notice. And Jesus also teaches a very very foreboding time in the future, in a time of judgment, when religious people, who we are told, have done remarkable things. They They have cast out evil spirits. They have performed miracles. They've done many wonderful things. They hear these frightening words from Jesus. Depart from me, for I never knew you. Jesus never had any time for ostentatious religion for people who thought that by doing righteous things, they would somehow earn God's favor. But that's not what happens in the story we just heard. The righteous ones, and Jesus uses that word to describe them, they don't even know they're righteous. Did you see that? This is a complete surprise to them. They are astonished to discover that they have, that they have just offered simple acts of compassion to, 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 to those in need, and they are actually blessing Jesus in the process. They weren't trying to chalk up spiritual frequent flyer miles. These actions were simply the outflow of their hearts. These hearts that belong to Jesus. These hearts that have been transformed by him. So it is like the reflection of a a mirror that, that we are allowed to see bit by bit. That we are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Who was the greatest social justice champion the world has ever known. In other words... When we perform acts of compassion for the sake of those who can never reward us, never benefit us, maybe never even adequately thank us, it is nothing more than a reflection, a mirror, if you will, of Jesus who offered his life as a sacrifice for the sake of those who would never reward him, who would never benefit him, who will never ever be able to adequately thank him for his compassionate salvation of our souls. This passage is a mirror. It's not a menu. There's something else worth noticing, I think. This teaching honors the mundane and not the miraculous. The mundane and not the miraculous. There are many things about the early disciples that might have intimidated us. We know that they got in trouble from time to time. They got chastised by Jesus from time to time. But in the end, these boys ended up doing some pretty remarkable stuff. They were casting out evil spirits. They were doing great miracles of healing. In some instances, they even raised people up from the dead. How intimidating would it be then for us to be listening in on the teaching of Jesus if he said that those who are going to go to heaven are the ones who miraculously healed the sick and who have miraculously liberated the prisoner, just like Paul was liberated from the Philippian jail. What if that was the requirement for us to get in? But Jesus doesn't ask for the miraculous He asks for the mundane. Visit the sick. Call on the prisoner. Feed the hungry. Water the thirsty. Give clothes to the naked. Be hospitable to the stranger. Buy someone a cup of coffee at Starbucks. Remember Curtis's story? 
How much more mundane can you get than a free cup of coffee? Every follower of Jesus can do these things, can't we? Not just those who have spiritual gifts, and we believe that there are spiritual gifts of healing and spiritual gifts of miracles. It's not just those who have those kind of spectacular gifts, we are told. All who belong to Jesus have been transformed by him. And all who belong to him can meet these simple, mundane needs and thereby show love to the neighbor. And it's not to save us. We're not doing those things to save ourselves. Jesus already saved us. But listen to this. If we have no pity... No interest, no inclination whatsoever to meet the mundane needs of those who are struggling in this life, then this teaching about the sheep and the goats ought to make us very, very queasy. It ought to make us wonder just how much of our lives Christ really does possess or if we are simply Christian pretenders. One of the things I love about Beyond These Walls is it is simple. Mundane, even. In previous campaigns, we built a gymnasium, and then we built a beautiful sanctuary, and we built a youth center, and we built a gathering place. At the end of this initiative, we won't have a thing to show for it if that's what you're measuring. We won't have another new building, we won't have a ribbon to cut, but we will have freed up resources to do the mundane things that seem to matter to Jesus feeding and clothing and housing the poor, caring for newborn babies, visiting the lonely and the trapped. And more importantly, perhaps, we will have trained and deployed life groups and leaders to actually do this work of compassion again and again for the sake of Jesus, rather than paying someone else to do it for them. Now, I want you to hear this. Beyond these walls is just one way for us to love our neighbor. I know that all of us... There are probably thousands of ways that that we love our neighbors that have nothing to do with Chapel Hill Church. And I hope that's true, actually. And I understand that. But beyond these walls, it will be one good way for us to do this. And in a moment, I'm going to share with you just how captivated this vision, that you have been been by this vision. This vision to eliminate $5 million of debt and to free up our resources And it will allow us to multiply life groups and release leaders and love Gig Harbor as never before. So before you hear the final number, I just want to say one more time, thank you for being humble, sacrificial reflections of Jesus Christ. I pray that this delights him. Okay, you ready? One of the things we said was our number one goal was 100% participation. At this moment, we have commitments from about two-thirds of our families, two-thirds. And I realize that 100% is a lofty goal, and we aren't there yet. But I want to say that this is the beginning of the race. It's not the end of it. And we are going to have many other opportunities over the next three years for others to join in, and I hope they will. I hope you will if you're not a part of this. And I expect that that's going to be the case. I want to share something that is very exciting, however. We were told that this kind of initiative rarely produces new giving, that it normally depends upon those who are already giving, and just ask them to dig a little deeper and give more. But there is something about this initiative that has captured the hearts of visitors and non-givers alike. And I'm pleased to be able to report to you that we have 43 families who have never given a dime to Chapel Hill, who have made pledges to be a part of Beyond These Walls. And our consultant says that's almost unheard of. 
I'm just curious how many heard because someone blabbed from last night. That's very impressive. I made them raise their hands and pledge that they would not say a word. All right. Before I I reveal this, I I just want to say, remember, this is a a journey. I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to keep your chins up because this is the beginning of a, it's a great step towards where we're going. So here we go. This is the number. Five million three hundred and ninety-five thousand and ninety-seven dollars. In fact, Dawn tells me we got some more last night, so I don't know what that total is. This is my fifth capital campaign here. You ought to get a medal for that, actually. <laughs> um, we have never hit our target for a capital campaign before. And one of the things that's interesting about this kind of an initiative, we are told that um, debt retirement campaigns are the hardest to do. They're not sexy. That's, I can't tell you how many times I heard the word. They're not sexy because you don't have anything to show for it. No new building, no ribbon cutting, which makes it all the more remarkable then to say that for the first time in 30 years that I've been here, for the first time we hit our campaign goal. For the... And, and we did so, this is even more remarkable, I think. We did so without a million-dollar gift. We did so without a $750,000 gift. We did so without a $500,000 gift. Our consultant told us you're going to have to have these, that you're going to have to hit those in order to make this number. We didn't hit any of those numbers, which means that this church, across the spectrum, from all economic backgrounds, said we love this vision this idea that we have enough and that it's time for us to get rid of that debt and to give ourselves away as we never have before. That is the vision that captured the heart of this congregation and for the first time we hit the goals that others said you'll never make. I think it's a remarkable, a remarkable work of the Lord. Our mission is working together to present everyone mature in Christ. And if this isn't working together... I don't know what is. And if this vision, which is all about turning our hearts outward, is not about maturity, I don't know what is. I cannot tell you how I was floating last night after I saw this number and how well I slept last night and how excited I am to be able to share this with you. So let me just say it one more time as your senior pastor to my beloved sweetheart church. I am so grateful and so 
proud for the way you listen to the Lord and the way that we have linked ourselves together, great gifts and small, to accomplish something we've never done before. To God be the glory. Amen. Why don't we give the Lord one more hand? When we stand together, let's sing the doxology as the band comes forward and Ellis helps move some things out of the way. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? Holy God, we are, we are astounded by your goodness, astounded by the work that you have done in our hearts, in your body here. Those of us who had the highest hopes, I'm sure there was still some wonderment of how can we hit a number that large. And yet, God, in a way that was utterly remarkable and in a way that confounded all of the experts, you said, no, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something special. And so great and small financially rose up together, linked arms, and said, here, this is what I can do. I will sacrifice. I will be a part of this. And so we see a number but it's more than a number. It represents hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who, and families who have said, we will do without for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so, Lord, I have never been more proud to be a part of this congregation, to be a pastor of this church. And I thank you for what you have done. To God alone be the glory. We offer our praise to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.